I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Will Predham of Predham Inc. and also Pierce Predham. Hello, sir. How are you? Good, Levy. How are you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. So you were born in 81, and by 95, you were working in restaurants. That's pretty much sums it up. I was about 14. I grew up just in Windsor, Ontario, which is on the other side of Detroit. So we had a huge American influence. My first restaurant job was, I was a short order cook at a high volume, very popular restaurant. I loved making my own money. I never liked relying on my family or parents for money. I mean, at 14, working on a line, that's pretty amazing, actually. I I rode my bike to the interview, and I got there about an hour and a half early. By the time I got in for my interview, and I was about fourth person in line, the queue went down the block, about 300 people. And uh, I, I immediately assumed that I wasn't getting a job, and I was applying for a dishwashing job. I did well in the interview, well enough to get a call back, obviously, and they offered an upgrade. 14 years old, waiting in line when there's people older than you and uh, and more experienced for very, you know, jobs are hard to come by, especially in Windsor, Detroit. It's a boom and bust economy. And you don't have the confidence, but, you know, if you don't step forward and try something, you're never going to find out anyway. But, you know, I was built with that blue collar mentality of you work hard. Who was working with you? They were misfits. They were the mixed bag of people. And I got to say, I was terrible at my job for about a year. I think they took pity on me because I worked hard, but I was really, really bad. Then someday it kind of clicked. And I think a lot of it had to do with the environment. It was a really tough, rough environment. You know, you're a cook at a high volume restaurant and it was tough. It's either make it work or get out, right? Like you're not going to influence that culture until you become a leader within it, right? And I think that's probably, that can go at any time, at any position in your life. But after a year, something clicked where all of a sudden things started to work out and I started to, there was some turnover in staff, which meant I was a little bit more senior and it empowered me to continue going forward. Almost every job that I felt worth doing throughout my career has gotten to the brink of, I should not be here and I'm going to get fired unless I pull up my, or I'm going to lose the contract, or I'm, this isn't going to work unless I choose this fork in the road. And that that job there, as, as tough as it was, forced me to develop that mentality very early on, that you have to make a choice and live with it. And in these instances, it was, it developed into a leadership role built on confidence of perseverance and not necessarily skill, right? Skills did develop afterwards, which you know, three years later, I'm running a kitchen at pretty much 18, which I thought was great. They thought was great. On the other side, you know, studies didn't really progress, unfortunately, in school. So, but that was my choice. And I actually felt much more comfortable with that. Like you like the restaurant community. You are more involved with that side of it yeah. than the school community. You are 100% correct. I've never been comfortable in school 
I was good at it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if I applied myself, it was very, very easy. But uh, I've also been quite anti-establishment, I guess. You're a smart guy. Well, you need to observe your environment around you, right? And I see what's going on uh, at a young age. Everyone's telling you you've got to go down this particular pathway, which I think has incredible value. But for me, it didn't. And I love the tactile sensation, the actual. There is also a rush and an energy in the hospitality industry that, that you really don't understand otherwise. It's almost like time can slow down when it's that busy. And I think everyone who's been in hospitality understands that, that particular moment. And it's, it's actually quite satisfying. I really like that rush. You know, I wasn't a guy who really played team sports, and that ad- adrenalized rush yeah. was a real thing for me. You're absolutely right. I mean, I played baseball growing up, but, you know, I can't, I don't know who's winning at hockey right now or anything like that. I, I love the concept of these things, but they've never really stuck with me. But this environment where people are working in unison and there are those moments, it, it was very stimulating. And when you're young, you can work quite hard, quite long. And probably for not that much money. Like probably you're not asking for that much dough. No, I remember asking for my first raise and that was incredibly important. One of the things that has stuck with me, if you don't advocate for yourself, you're going to stay where you're at. And ambition is positive and negative. But at that time, uh, you know, I'm running a kitchen at 18 years old and I'm getting paid, I think, $7 an hour. And uh, I said, well, you know, I deserve more. And of course, got the, well, we can't really afford to pay you anything, right? So I went out and got another job. And it immediately changed their tone. And I wasn't being a dick about it. And I wasn't asking for a lot, you know, maybe a 15, 20% increase, right? That means a lot when you're making not very much. So we did end up negotiating with the owner, which was great. And it was, again, another source of, of pride to come back downstairs after that meeting. And I think I got my raise to eight fifty. I remember that vividly, actually. It was $8.50. My mind was blown that this actually occurred. And then they gave me back pay for a couple of months. And it's like 300 bucks, right? But man, for someone who's 18, who just did all of that, it was more the lesson. And I think they knew that too, right? Uh, it was a positive environment. But like restaurants, you know, it can be very demanding. And uh, if you don't embrace that culture... <laughs> You're, you should be out, right? I mean, that was a decision I had to make in my own life where I realized I didn't want to embrace the 80, 90 hour work week anymore. I think that's what it comes down to eventually, especially when you mix in children and how you want to be. I can say right now that hospitality is still in me and I will never say that I will never go back, okay? You can't take it out of someone like myself. There is someone in Toronto where I live, and that I worked with. Her name's Tracy Tucker. She works for Oliver and Bonaccini restaurants that I worked for for six years. And in my opinion, she's done it right. She ran a restaurant. She made a choice to reduce her hours and spend more time with her family. And eventually, after a couple of years, when that time started to progress into another stage in your life, she was able to ramp it back up with the same company. And now she's running a number of restaurants in that group. And that right there is a testament to her integrity, because you don't just throw things out because it's not working for you that time. You need to realize what you've invested in it, right? And it's also, it says something about the company as well to say, you know what? People are humans. We invested in you. We got to allow you to do your things, but keep very clear on what the demands are for that business. It's really rare to find people like that that see it like that. I always think about something like that with Tracy and the way that she approached her career and still is working it, I will never say that I'm going to be, I don't think I cannot not be in it. I got to figure out a way to, but I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old and I want to be present for them. This is a crucial time for that. So speaking about transitions, eventually you ended up front of the house and more in a fine dining environment. Yeah. You're making $8.50 an hour and you're seeing servers bring in cash tips and it, it was pretty pretty easy decision. Uh, You get ostracized a bit from the back of house, but I still would go in and do shifts and they understood. So I still maintain the respect because I could do their job and then some, but 
yeah, I needed to make a few more dollars. I'm now 18, going on 19. The drinking age in Canada is 19. And, uh, you know, you're in that environment. You're partying all the time. Lots of good-looking people doing well. I ended up leaving that job and moving to, you know, more of a kind of high-volume, more mature restaurant, uh, which was great for having fun. But I also came to the realization after a big night of partying with everyone that I could stay in this environment perpetually until it is no longer cool. And it was a big wake up. I remember the general manager was a really good friend of mine. And this was right after 9-11. So everyone's mind was a little bit messed up. And I called him up and I said, I'm done. I can work for a couple more weeks, obviously, but I need to change because the pathway, it can kind of suck you in, right? And it required me to reset my brain. So that's what I did. I moved to Western Canada, still in hospitality. I was able to get a job with Fairmont Hotels and in a fine dining environment, but I had no fine dining experience whatsoever. Again, another opportunity given to me. And that was the start of a different journey. I think a lot of times people think of Canada and Canadians as kind of one thing. But when you went to Western Canada, what was the difference? I also associate quite a bit with the States, with the Detroit upbringing. I felt more Michiganer. Like if you look at a map, we are a suburb of Detroit, right? All our television, all of our radio. But moving out west, you do have a bit more of a outdoors, big skies, chill kind of atmosphere. There's a bit of a hate on for the East Coast, which I never really understood. But hey, whatever, you're living in God's country out there. And it was a, a good move. Because at the summer prior, I had discovered Europe, and I just discovered a bit of culture, realizing that there is so much more to the world than living in one place. So the wanderlust kicked in, which still exists to this day. Uh, what I did fall in love with were the mountains on a train through Switzerland, and seeing what that was, it just moved me on the inside. And we have gorgeous mountains like that in Western Canada. No one really knows that we have uh, Rocky Mountains in Canada, but we do, and they're pretty gorgeous. So that was the decision. I'm going to move out there. I'm going to learn how to snowboard. I know how to serve tables. I know how to cook. I can figure that out. And that's what I did, just on a whim. And I spent four years out there, first at a resort in the interior of British Columbia, and then moved to Calgary, Alberta, which it's like the Texas of Canada, lots of beef and oil. And at that time, the economy was really, really strong out there. Oil was really jumping up. And I was coming from an economically depressed area, like significantly economically depressed. So I move out west and all of a sudden I have cash coming out of my pockets all the time. With this is an exposure to fine dining which again blew my mind, but I was completely unprepared for. Because it was tourist season, they really couldn't afford to fire me. And so I had to learn, which was excellent. And I did, and eventually moved up that ladder. And that's where sommelier really popped into my head as a career choice. It kind of was the sum of what I was looking for, because I was definitely looking for something. You wanted to find a cool part of the restaurant life that really appealed to you. Yeah, or the next level of the restaurant life. Like, it was it's all been progression, right? So I'm at this area where I'm taking this seriously as a career now, because it is a serious career. In this area here, there were professionals that were respected. People took incredible pride in what they were doing. And that's all I really wanted to do was take pride in what I was doing and, and find time that was worthwhile being spent. Luckily, it was a stunning environment, and you had really great hours. <laughs> you know, you work a couple hours at night, make a couple hundred dollars get to learn about wine, go to wine school, and kind of food and wine, restaurant culture. This is all very new. This is like 2001, 2002. In Canada, sommelier was, was not very popular. There were, the major city epicenters would have a few, and they were the linchpins of that society, but there was really not much else. I was really fortunate to be exposed to a Western Canada epicenter, and it was ahead of the curve for Canada. And I felt like if I completed these courses, when I moved back to Windsor or when I moved to Vancouver or Toronto or wherever, I would have a skill set that no one else would have. And that really appealed to me. It was about being unique. I was, I've 
fair amount of bravado as well at the same time, and I wanted to be the I wanted to be the guy, right? So that was part of the motivation, but there's a, just a general love of what this was that, you know, you probably had the same thing in your head. Like, this is an excuse for me to drink great wines and get paid for it. And that was, that was incredibly alluring. When I grew up, we grew up in a trailer park. There was no wine. Yeah. And so when I got into the part where there was wine, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. This could be work. I feel a very similar affinity to that story. We had a good upbringing. I, I wouldn't change anything, but you're just not exposed to this, right? And to see what life could be in a very positive way, it was liberating. And, uh, you know, I think for someone like yourself and myself, that's part of the motivation, perhaps, because you never really want to go back to that spot. Again, great family upbringing, love what they've done. And I still, you know, I love them very much. But now I've got to care for my children. And it's a different environment. It's a completely different environment from when I grew up, period. Because that environment really doesn't exist much anymore. You're saying money means a lot more now. Partially. I wouldn't say it's all about money. I think it's about the concept of independence and how you can own your own future, which I think is extremely hard to do. And we're all disillusioned to think that we can, but it's part of the motivation. And and yes, of course, money helps out, but it's not a, I get no pleasure from doing things strictly for money. Like for example, wine sales. There are people who do that incredibly well. And I wish I had that skill set. I could sell one case of wine, 200 cases of wine, 1,000 cases of wine. I get no utility out of that, right? Even my own wine. I'm more proud to go up and say to someone that I respect and like and say, hey, check this out. I'm proud of this. This is something that I had a hand in, in making. But like the sales part of it, it's probably frustrating for my partner. I'm not much of a closer because it, it just doesn't do much for me, right? There are definitely times in my life where I could have made decisions that would have meant a lot more money, yep. but that just didn't feel like me. And I'm not saying they weren't the right thing for somebody else or, you know, obviously here I am in this little apartment, right? Like yep. when you turn 41 and you've made some of those decisions, you really look back and you're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was so bright. Yeah, but. absolutely. But then I'm, I sleep well at night, right? And that's a, and not every night, right? You still worry and all of that. And I'm like, uh, I'm 36, actually, I'm turning 37. But it's, we're all getting older, we have to lead by example, we've made choices that we have to, to live by. And at least I, I'm in a luxurious position to say it's been really cool, and still continues to be. And it started from extremely humble beginnings. I am incredibly privileged to be experiencing this right now. I could go broke tomorrow, just like any self-employed person. And I wouldn't look back and say, well, that was a waste. I'd probably look back and say, how can I make this not happen again? And the environment will tell you. So 2002 era, what was going on for Canadian consumers with wine? Were people into wine? or I was in an, a resort environment. So we saw a lot of international travelers, which was really helpful for perspectives of global culture, which is something that was important to me. And eventually you get really good at reading individuals, which every good sommelier server, they'll know what you want before you even know what you want, right? That's a service professional. So I got to really experience and live that with an international clientele. The styles at the time were, you know, full parkerized, big juicy wines. I think there was some overlap probably in the United States to that. And chasing after those particular wines, though we had a a breadth because we had German tourists, we had Japanese, we had Americans, and I got to open up a lot of really cool juice in context with those individuals, which is a great place to be. It makes, because it was my first fine dining environment, I just assumed it would always be like that, which it definitely isn't. But at that time, things are going well. We're always busy. Like I said, uh, having some money in your pocket, which was very new to me, it changed the way that I behaved. After a few years of this, when I left, I you know had a few grand in the bank, no debt, and sommelier papers, right? So as far as the consumers, they were drinking wine, but I was in a bubble, right? I was in a bubble. And when I moved back to Windsor, Detroit, it was a big wake-up call, right? I'm Mr. Guy on the Block, 
and no one knows what the hell I am, right? There's like, well, why, we don't even know what job to give you, right? Uh, and the consumers there were Americanized, right? And we still have a bit of that as well, right? A lot of big, juicy wines, comfortable wines. There is a significant amount of high profile, some wealth in that area, and people who drink really great wines. I mean, tool and die in automotive, it's a big industry, right? So still exposed, but the culture is different. We don't have vacationers. So that was an eye-opener right there. And then also being one of the only ones, when I rolled back into town, I thought I was the only one, but someone who turned out to be one of my best friends had just completed courses in Toronto, and he had the same feelings. He had the same thought, hey, I'm coming back. I'm Mr. Wine. All right, here we go. And then I roll into town, and I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? And then we ended up becoming, like, we've been best friends since, really, still. The economy tanked right about the time that you both moved and got married, right? It tanked again, yes. So my friend Corey Latticer, we both left Windsor because Windsor, it was tough. We had exhausted the wine paths there. And we were still ambitious, so we decided to get a two-bedroom condo in Toronto and give it a whirl there, right? And that was 2008. So we rolled in when things were rocking. Now, Toronto is the financial capital of Canada. This is where all the bankers are. Our Wall Street is uh, Bay Street. And they had the same thing going on. Huge expense accounts, no accountability, people just spending money. And this is an environment that I am not used to at all. So again, I was really terrible at my job because of that. And other reasons, it was high profile and very busy. The, the economy just tanked maybe f six months after I, I started and that was actually a sense of comfort for me, if you can believe that, not monetarily, but the environment, austerity kicks in, and people are spending a little bit less, which allowed me to catch my breath, frankly. Like, I wasn't comfortable buying, you know, Bond and all these different really expensive Napa wines that people were just shooting back. That was the silver lining in something that really affected a lot of people's lives, right? myself included. And Toronto had a wine scene, right? Toronto had a really cool wine scene. It was one that I looked up to, and I still, I still do. He's a, a really good guy, Jamie Drummond. He's a Scot who has been living in Toronto, God, I don't know, 20 years. And he ran a wine program at a place called Jamie Kennedy's Wine Bar, which was, it was an institution. It's still one of the coolest wine bars that existed in Toronto, even to this day. I remember visiting him for the first time from Windsor, and he blind-tasted me on something. He thought, he's like, oh, yeah, you got this idiot from Detroit coming up here. And I'm going to blind taste him. He put it in the glass and it was a really great gruner. Like it was a really like poignant, you know, like spicy, that white pepper just give away. It was unctuous on the, like even just looking at it. And I remember going like, oh, gruner, cool. And I, just the look on his face, right? But he was one of the few at the time that was really working the city in a very specific sommelier role, like wine director role. There were very few of them. And the scene was just, it was just nascent. And there were, again, people before that, definitely, that I admire, and some that are still working in it that are just amazing. But it, it was the mark of, like, the transition into more of a youthful environment. And I was very fortunate to move there when the community was just really burgeoning before the explosion, I guess, which is where we're at right now. And a lot of things are timing in life. When I arrived, you know, I was nobody. It didn't really matter, right? I had a great job. You know, everyone wanted to sell wine to me, but the community itself, everyone was a bit standoffish. You know, you'd try to one-up people a little bit. Eventually, you're seeing these people constantly at all the shows, and you realize you got a bunch in common, and they become your best friends. And we were really fortunate that most people got along really, really well after that. And it was, again, situational. And we've got cool jobs. So, I know it sounds like you know, positive hocus-pocus, you know, Canadian A, everything's all good to go. But it, it was really positive. I've seen some pretty negative environments, I'm sure you have as well, where, you know, competition and all that stuff, it doesn't really help. Uh, and it sometimes can, friendly competition, but, you know, bad-mouthing, or if there isn't a lot of work. Often, if there isn't a lot of work to be done, if there aren't a lot of opportunities or things are contracting, that's when things get a little harried, right? We've been on an expansion in Toronto since... I mean, it crashed in 08, but since then we had to reinvent ourselves. And it didn't crash nearly as bad as it did in the States, but it still did, especially in a financial center, right? 
Everyone rethought how they were doing things. The dining community had it was big and splashy. It retracted into much more casual, cost-effective, which forces you to look into different areas, different wines. It wasn't as easy an environment, but people still wanted to drink and go out. You needed an escape. So that's where we were at. And you started to kind of knuckle down, do some competitions, start studying for exams. Yes. I get motivated when people tell me I can't do something especially when it's something that I want to do. I had a few people say, well, you know, you, you can never be that kind of sommelier. You know, those people over in Europe, they're incredibly professional. Those people in New York, they've got it all down. And that right there is motivation to me to say, oh, well, that, thank you very much. I almost want to say thank you very much because that gives me that push, right? Also seeing colleagues push themselves. There's a friend of mine, Jonathan Gonsenhauser. He owns a restaurant in Toronto called Pounds. He put himself out to do the advanced Court of Master Sommelier's exam. And he didn't pass, I believe, the first time. And, you know, everyone says, oh my God, you didn't pass, whatever. You put all this pressure on yourself and you come back and you feel defeated. And then he went back, he trained some more, he went to Europe, trained a little bit over there with Gerard Basset. And then he came back and he got it. That right there, you are way better of a sommelier and you're way better of a person on the inside when you persevere through things that really can knock you down. And it does hurt and suck, right? So that happened there. I saw my colleagues pushing themselves. That was motivation. I had people say, hey, I don't know if you could do this. And I decided to say, okay, well, let's, let's do a competition. And I won the best Ontario sommelier competition. I believe this was 2010, somewhere along those lines. I did not, again, expect to win. I had some great competitors that I was going against. My first competition. But it happened. And from there, went to the Canadian level where I actually had to do it in a second language. And I did mine in Spanish, which is not our second language. It kind of probably pissed off a couple people, as you can imagine. And the Quebecois, the Quebecers, they are masters of this domain. This is their competition. Okay. Like when an Anglo comes in and says, I'm going to do this, we're, I'm written off right away, which is exactly where I want to be because it's, again, motivation for me. I didn't win that one, but I did get second place. And that really helped again. That was a, huh? How'd that happen moment? And for myself and the community where I started to believe that, hey, I should probably pursue this. Have you ever done competitions or anything like that? Never my thing. Or how about courses or anything? Took a number of courses, sure. Yeah, so the people that you take these courses with and you study with and you do these competitions with, very, very similar. You develop a, a common bond that years later, you can call upon them because you spent that time to work on it. That becomes very part of your personality, right? That right there was the best thing I got out of all of that. On top of the education, of course, but the exposure and those relationships. I'm going to look back when I'm 60 and go like, well, what do I have left, right? And it's probably going to be the relationships I'm grateful to have had and hopefully still have. You were also moving into management at that time. And I think it, that's the period of time when you have to really develop those personal skills or you sink. Well, it's personal management. I'd been in management. Uh, it's sommelier position in Toronto and in Canada has always been a dual role for the most part. A lot of that has to come down to the economics of it, especially after 08, having single positions for that was really tough to succeed at. And frankly, it's something you need to really think about. Now it's changed a bit where the environment, they've seen the value with sommeliers on the floor, selling wine, that's what they do. And they can justify that with the sales, right? At that time, you say management, I say more business acumen. That's when the brain started to say, okay, you need to look at this as a numbers game, as well as a philosophy game or a way I want to work game. And if you don't have all of those together, then you will not be able to manage yourself in self-employment, which is something I always wanted to be. I was always entrepreneurial. The first 12 businesses I started failed miserably before they even got off the ground, which is very, very common. And working with Oliver and Bonaccini, as I did for six years in a management role, yes, in a high-profile sommelier role, I was responsible for the financials of many places, right? Especially their flagship restaurant, which was the thing that kept the lights on. And that is an enormous amount of pressure. If you can't figure that out, how are you going to figure out your own life, right? And that was the education. Six years later, I can do that. It's not my favorite part, but it is definitely a value add. And I don't have to pay someone else to do it for me. 
which is really important because, I mean, you're self-employed as well. It's a numbers game and you need to you need to be continuously moving forward, but accounting for everything behind it. It's a lot of work, as you know. One of the things I found about self-employment is that you just have to keep pushing a rock up that hill. It's more about staying in it than it is about anything else. Like, You're right. Because it's a slow build. It's a slow build. Unless you get really lucky. From out of the gate, you get some big splash. If you don't get that, it's going to take real time. And the thing is showing up for it. And I think that that's a restaurant skill. Because the thing about restaurants is the guys who get fired are the ones who don't show up for their shift. Yep. And it's essentially, you just got to show up. And, and then you got to own it when you're there. Like, you really do need to, or you're going to end up being miserable, right? And I'll say four years into that job, I'd done as well as I could. And the competitions were going really well, so I'm dedicating more time to that. That's when I started mentally starting to drift from there where I wasn't dedicating as much time to that engagement in the job. This is an A-type company, right? You need to work on their level all the time. And if you can't, then you got to move out of the way, right? They were really awesome about that, where I could reduce my schedule a bit so I can accommodate for these competitions, which is something I wanted to do. And they were really gracious about it, right? Like They probably knew before I did that I was moving somewhere else mentally. And as opposed to say, all right, Will's done. He can go get a, you know, rep job or work, do something else. Doesn't really matter. They still engaged in me, which again is something that I really hope to pay back someday if I ever get to any sort of level like that. But nonetheless, my brain started to, to kind of waver a bit. I had these skills. I'm getting anxious. I spend a lot of time in, in places. I probably spent a little bit too much time there, but in the end, it was, it was still beneficial. I mean, I think. Most of the time, moving is just a horizontal move. It's not a vertical move, usually. You're in the 100% business. correct. And that's where I was looking at this. I couldn't move up any higher in that company unless I wanted to change my job structure. And I worked really hard to try to create a position, but that's, that's next to impossible to do unless there's real need for it, right? And it's still not going to work out because it's not your company, right? So anything else, I could move to another great restaurant or a group or something like that. It would be the same thing in a different situation. So that's when I decided to start moving into this self-employment. What does that look like? How do I make it work? How do I look at a year? How do I look at a month and a day and, and see how I'm going to pay my mortgage and do what I want to do that's engaging? And that was a massive trip. It was extremely hard. I'm glad I don't have to do that exact process again. And it's terrifying. You'd probably know it's terrifying. And it's completely different now what I am doing than what I thought I would be doing when I started. Was it the same for you? Or did you say, I'm going to do this podcast and that's what I'm going to do? When I started the podcast, I was also working as a sommelier. And I didn't necessarily know that it was going to be like a long-term thing. thing. <laughs> like I was working with a producer at that time. And I really thought any moment he's going to pull the plug and there's going to be no more show. Yep. If you look at the early releases, I was releasing like twice a week because I thought, we got to get this out before this guy pulls the plug. That's probably the best way that things could occur in self-employment without, of course, huge finance behind you or something along those lines. If you're like, I'm going to practice these things while I'm still employed, which I did. I had that luxury of having that extra day. I was doing the competitions, but I was doing some public speaking. I was teaching at a school. I was trying to just generate some other income and some responsibility while I was getting a paycheck. And if you are thinking about doing this, you can do that. I would highly recommend if you want to start doing something on your own, keep your day job. You're going to have to work on it. You're going to really have to work on it. Eventually get to the point where I needed to pull the trigger one way or the other. And I think it was uh, December 31st, 2013 on New Year's Eve, we had a really great bash at canoe. We built this six foot tall ice moose, and it, yeah, we went like full on Canada there and built like a luge through it. And we were doing Negroni luges, it was really fun. But that was my last day of employment. That wasn't my own employment, I guess you could say. You're like, wow, we're not going to top this moose Negroni luges. <laughs> and yeah, it's <laughs> see you later, Mike Job, right? <laughs> It's, I know. You got to know a, when to get out. You it's know? a little thick, right? I wanted to see the pictures later on and be like, yeah, we own that. 
we should have been in Mountie uniforms or something like that. If you go back and look at the picture, it's probably not even a moose. It's probably like a, you know, like a sheep or something. <laughs> yeah. In memory, it's probably you're blowing it up way too much. Yeah, know? no, I, I get, but I'll send you something. But in my mind, it was like, all right, starting a new chapter. Here we go. And it was cool, but it was debilitatingly challenging the first six months. So something that's really interesting about you is that you focused in on trade as your audience. That's so right. you didn't focus in on selling wine to the public. You focused in on being a conduit between people who wanted to speak to the trade and setting up events for them yep. and doing promotions for them. And then also you make wines from different places in the world that are specifically targeted towards on trade, like restaurant yep. sommeliers. It's incredibly important to me to be on that side. I have dedicated my career to it. I saw a massive need for communication between trade agencies and wineries and that trade themselves. I went to so many boring tastings and events and quote-unquote masterclasses that really weren't speaking to the people that were making decisions. And it was a missed opportunity. These things are beautiful, but they're being misrepresented. And not all of them, right? But you go to enough of these. After a while, the people who do make those decisions and the people that are coming up, the sheen wears off of getting wined and dined all the time, right? How do we effectively communicate that? I was fortunate to be an educator for WSET. I opened up a school in Guelph, Ontario at the university there. And education had been great. It had been part of this. And I loved speaking to people about that. But I also didn't want to be the person to be the spokesperson. It's great to be a spokesperson and have that wine personality. But, you know, I have access to so many people who are better at it or more exposed to certain aspects. And I want to hear them talk about what's going on. Like I, like, I like hearing about when you talk about Piedmont, right? I want to hear it from you. I can do that, but I'd rather bring someone else in to do that. And I had some organizational skills. So I pitched this to a number of trade organizations and I just saw the wave coming that these things are coming our way. We need to communicate this the best we possibly can. And if I can facilitate that, great. So that was business number one that kind of stuck around and has evolved. It's no longer just a master class, blah, 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 blah. There needs to be an experiential aspect. Sometimes it's a bit hokey, but it gets people in the room engaged and retaining the information afterwards. It's all I really care about. But it seems like you are addressing a new audience that really wouldn't have been there 15 years before. That is correct. The audience now is incredibly youthful, and they are engaging at so many levels. It's this exponential growth. There are so many educated engaged personalities on the floor. A great restaurant will have a sommelier. They'll have multiple people, they'll have servers doing this, and that's just mind-boggling. So how do we continue to speak to them, right? And I just speak to them the way that I want to be spoken to. Uh, not condescending, provide good examples, be very respectful of their time. We don't have a lot of time in hospitality. That's where the disconnect was, right? A marketing agency could come through and set something up that's beautiful, but these people got to work until two in the morning. Come on, like, that's nuts. You can't occupy people's time like that, right? So what is the Canadian or the, what is the Toronto sommelier? What is that person? Or is it really diverse? I have a list of sommeliers. And every six, eight weeks, I need to revise that list. Right. Add more. Who changed to where? You get about a year and a half out of someone at a good place normally. And then they'll go on to something else that engages with them out of the business, but I'm seeing more people come into it. And diversity is key. Toronto is diverse by nature. So as far as wine styles, what I think we're starting to maybe see is embracing that diversity a little bit more. For a while there, it was kind of shotgun approach, I felt, where that's an Italian place, but we got to have California on there. And it, it, like that stuff, it's like, I, I can probably go to you know American style place and do that, right? Like if you're Italian, get me Italian. If you're a natural wine bar, give me a natural wine bar. Own that, you know? And we're seeing these sommeliers coming up saying, I see value in that as opposed to filling in the grids. I talked to some of the old guard sommeliers and they shake their heads because they can't keep up with who's doing what. And there are a lot of cool things opening up all the time and great things as well. Not just cool for the sake of being cool, we're going to turn over next year. These people are changing stuff. That's crazy. So all of that kind of speaks to why someone in your role would be important because someone has to keep track of who these people are. And it's a really nomadic time in the wine business where so many people are coming in, but then they quickly cycle out when they find out maybe it's not for them or 
or they're just looking for the next rung on the ladder. They want to keep moving in yeah. their own career, which I find, at least in New York, there's a lot more drive to do that much quicker than there would have been, say, 15 years ago, yeah. where people are like, oh, no, I'm going to stay here and like learn. And now I find that people are constantly looking for the next move in their career, and they're really looking at it as a career. And so all of that means a lot of movement. And so someone like you can say to someone coming in from the outside, here's what the scene is right now. Mm -hmm. Because a couple months ago, it was different. And if you email that guy, well, he's a pre-med now. He yeah. He's not in the business. <laughs> so Yeah, you're, you're right. It's important to be engaged in it still and go out and see what's going on because it's changing like a chameleon. And there is no roadmap. Everyone wants to access this thing. I'm not saying I can access that. All I'm saying is that I'm trying to bring things that appeal to people who have busy lives, busy times, diverse networks. So how do you do that? You have cool events that pique your interest and then plug in the correct programming for that. And I can say no if it's not the right programming. If they want me to execute some sort of top-down event from XYZ country because that's the way they do it, I can't do that because we're going to fail right? Or can we build something that's specific to that market so these people walk away with something in their heads and we're investing in their growth, not where they're at right now. Like that transitional factor, right? I can't stand it when I hear, well, that person isn't there anymore. But in my mind, I'm like, no, that person's still in the industry. Transition is, is a part of that equation. And if we're going to invest in that individual, we're going to do that, right? If they're leaving the industry, I get it. So it sounds like what you're saying is, you need to be thinking about getting their attention early and then maintaining it through their whole career. There's one more step to that. Having gone through this part of hospitality and now moved into this, I think it's incredibly important that I give some vision of the future if you choose to decide to leave the floor or hospitality and still want to stay within wine. This is incredibly important. I'm not saying follow my career path. I'm saying that there is, it's not you're at the end and you, you know, put to pasture or you need to leave the industry. I think that's it's wrong. You can create your path. Because it's nascent, you can do what you want to do. You just got to put the time in to do it. Same thing with your show. Like who would have said that six years ago, this podcast would be super important, right? And there's no roadmap for that, right? There's no roadmap for what I'm doing. It was a good timing. I worked really hard at it. And it comes from a place inside that it fits my values. I want to make sure that people are engaged and not just robots going through it. And then I'm engaged. It's, it's selfish. It's selfish. It's about me. But I do think that education and knowledge and not just spewing things off, it's incredibly important. And there's so much out there that I don't know about that I want to start seeing more of. A lot of people in the industry make the assumption that it's an A or B situation. You're, you're totally either right. a sommelier or you're, you're a sales rep. Yep. And there's no other place for you. Whereas we all know this is an evolving trade that the people who have money to spend on events want to reach these people but don't really know how to do it or even who to reach. It's important. Yeah. And at the same time, with new media, there's opportunities to do things that there just weren't opportunities to do 10, 15, 20 years ago. And there's all of these people who are cycling through mm -hmm. and who are like, well, working the floor, maybe not, but I would love to do something with wine. And I think that's the growth area. You're right. That's where we're going to see people innovate. But yep. they're going to have to innovate because there's not defined paths for those people. You're 100% correct. And that's the challenging part because a lot of people don't like being first if you're in business, right? If you're second and you can model after that, that's a good business model. But as far as inspiration... To, if you can line up inspiration and dedication and the, the right time and the right idea, that's a win. That's delving into the future and writing your own path. But you suffer the same consequences, positive or negative, right? So when you do get something somewhat right, you want to foster that while still trying to remain relevant in a changing environment. There is no roadmap. So when you look at the pool of young trade buyers and sommeliers, mm -hmm. Are you more drawn to the overachievers or the underachievers? I'm drawn to the person who shows up, first and foremost. You show up to this, you've dedicated your time. I appreciate that greatly. And if you have questions, I'll do my best to answer them. But sometimes it's not a clear answer, the one that you want to hear. It's not the fuck-ups or the, the overachievers. It's like, who's going to stick in through the shit that you're going to go through, right? And 
it's tough. It's tough. And people's lives change. We go through things where there are external factors that come into play. You get a new job, you lose your job, you get married, you get divorced, you have children, you do. And this is the level that I'm at right now of, you know, I've got a burgeoning family. So I need to be able to make best use of my time while still remaining relevant. I think everyone's going to go through a change. And I'd probably say acknowledging that it's going to occur and hopefully you can create an environment that allows for that change for you to live within your value system, then awesome. What you're saying is that permanent employment, stay at one job for the whole thing and it's going to grow with you and you're going to grow with that. That's really not a reality in the business that we see right now. To think that you're going to stick in one place forever, it's an illusion. There are very few people who can do that. Even owners, let's say you own it. Even the stuff that I'm doing right now, I know it will not be in this same permutation that it is right now, right? And also, if things change in the future and employment becomes an option, you got to take it sometimes, right? So to say that you're going to do something the same way forever, man, you got to really take a look at how you're doing it. But if it engages you with your values and you want to really be in this industry, know that it's diverse as hell. And I don't think that the industry has been developed nearly as much as it, it can. I think we're still kind of stone age, to be honest. Well, it does seem like it's a growing niche and that you realize it's a niche that you can sell to and yeah. work with. I think I saw that in 2001 when I started, like 15 years ago. I said, this is something that could carry me that is going to be growth. What I do see now is that it's a full marketplace and it hasn't reached its boundaries, but there are a lot of sommeliers out there. There are lots and lots and lots. So with that, does that diminish the value? I don't think so. Not yet. I think you need to raise the bar. As far as what the job is and so on and so forth, we all know people who went to chef school that aren't chefs, right? You know, do they walk around calling themselves, I'm a chef? It's like, well, actually, no, I'm an accountant, but I went to chef school. Same sort of thing can occur. And sommelier does have a lot of street cred, but it, I think it will evolve into other things. And frankly, the individuals are more important than the title, in my opinion. When you want to address the trade, what's important? It's an education-based environment. The people who are sommeliers love to learn. And we have a lot of people who are really broad in their knowledge. When we start seeing these individuals start to specialize, I think it's going to get really, really, really cool. That's where the super diversity comes in. It's like, I'm going to, this is my thing because I love it. And it doesn't mean that you can't change it. Frankly, change is going to be part of it, right? But it's, you can dig down in the sommelier community and specialize as much as you want. You can be that individual, the Piedmont expert, the Argentinian expert, the New Zealand expert. The, you could be the Canadian expert for that matter, right? That still has to be really owned. The restaurant culture has changed where we've embraced that diversity. And it gives these sommeliers the opportunity to become experts within their chosen field. They don't need to be a jack of all trades. They can be the best at this particular style of restaurant. And I think that there's still a couple of years of growth within those, those niches and betterment within those niches. And then things will probably reset again. But the way I look at it is almost in like a 3D line. And right now we have a breadth of offerings and then there's an elevation of quality within them. And that quality level is going to continue to grow. And a lot of that is benchmarked with these sommeliers that are in there. I'm not discounting the ones that have the jack-of-all-trade restaurants. Those are super important, right? And we need to cater to those clientele. We have a diversity of clientele, too, which you just need to cater to. But we've moved away from every restaurant has to have everything on it to, I feel like this tonight. And what about the production side? So you're involved in a wine label that sources wine out of South Africa, Oregon, and Ontario. And if you're to look at that triangle... What are the differences and what are the challenges between the wine production of those three regions? We started with Oregon because unlike the United States, we have very limited access to it. The state of Oregon could sell all its wine in the U.S. no problem, right? In fact, I think they did that for quite some time where they said, hey, this is the price, this is what it's going to be. They've started in their maturity to see the value in, in diversifying their markets. You can't just go to one market because... 08 hits and uh-oh, my customers dried up, right? Nonetheless, we had very little in the market and there was a need for it, right? Finding good Pinot at a reasonable price is extremely hard to do. The juice was just good. So 
we said, let's let's do this. Let's import it. Let's target only restaurants. So we're going to price it accordingly. We're going to take less margin, but we're going to be extremely precise with our Pinot. We're going to fill a massive hole. And being a sommelier, I'm like, I know that I would buy tons of Oregon wines. I'd sell through it and I wouldn't be able to get it again. So I was hoping that was going to happen. And it did. Next year, South Africa, I wanted to do something there. And Radford Dale, Alex Dale, I met him in Toronto at coffee. I said, we do this with Oregon. I love South Africa. The juice that you make, it's 12% crunchy, high acid, vibrant Chenin Blanc, right? Not the soupy interior, exhausting, I can only have a glass. And yeah, it's complex, but you know the wines need to be fresh. They're for restaurants. They need to work with food. His mindset was exactly that. I started to explain the concept. He stood up and shook me. I said, let's do this. And that fall went down there, blended with their team. In my sommelier brain, I'm filling a hole on a menu, and I'm also putting it in with food. Jacques, our winemaker at Radford Dale, he has something called the smashability index. We call it the crushability index. And if you can't drink a glass and want another one, essentially, if you can't crush it back and not feel exhausted, then we need that style of wine. We need you to have a bottle of wine with the food or beforehand and still want another one, right? It's not about complexity. It's about access and freshness. So both areas have different reasoning. They're, they're simpler wines. We don't go all Guy Fieri and throw donkey sauce on it. It's like, it's very pure. We just want Pinot that tastes like Oregon Pinot. We don't want to soup it up with 20% new oak and all this other stuff. Just give us naked juice, right? We want people to just be able to have something to drink and not pay an arm and a leg for it. But it's it's the simpler, th- it's almost simple is hard. Simple is actually really hard to do because your brain starts taking over and you want to do this. But the economic side of it, it's like it has to be accessible. If economically can be successful for the restaurant, they can sell something they're proud of at a great price point and turn it over, they economically go forward, right? And we have all these options to be able to do that locally and abroad that I think are really underutilized. Will Predom has had a lot of things figured out over the last few years, but at the same time, he knows that there's a lot that he still has to discover. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Levy. Appreciate it. Will Predom of Predom Inc., as well as the Pierce Predom Wine Label. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. with not being on the floor sommelier, I know my relevance in that world is is waning and I'm okay with that. I want to make sure that the people who are coming in have the tools so they can succeed because it's a cool job, right? It is excellent, incredibly engaging. I'm okay to walk away from that, but I'm not okay to walk away from the culture that, you know, I was part of for a while.